Welcome back. Hit Factory here. My name is Aaron, and today I am joined by a good friend of the show from Chicago. We have academic and horror aficionado, obsessive guru even, Peter Raleigh joining me today. Peter, welcome back to Hit Factory. Hey, Aaron. Hey, everybody. Long time, second time, as it were. (laughs) (laughs) Well, I'm thrilled to have you back on the show today. Very excited to be back. This effectively is going to function, I guess, as our Halloween episode. We have definitely not programmed as deliberately around the spooky season as we have in years past. Uh, But I did think that it would be nice to bring you on, Peter, as somebody uh, in my Twitter feed who just really loves this time of year and really just loves horror movies really year round. I feel like uh, it it wasn't something I knew about you at first. And then the more we engaged and the the more I saw your your movie posting, I realized this guy's really, really into horror movies. Oh, yeah, absolutely. This uh, honored, honored to be representing this season because it is. (laughs) Yeah, it is. It is. It's I, I have I have separate and conjoined affection for both horror and autumn so really october is sort of you know that that's is when i flourish that's it's my time of year well and it's uh it's good to have a a fellow midwesterner on the show um, because this time of year is absolutely the most beautiful uh in anywhere there in the uh, continental midwest of the united states uh it's not here on the west coast in the bay area it's been obscenely hot and then uh almost overnight like a couple days ago uh the temperature suddenly dropped and now it is cold all the time but it's not it's not midwest cold i was gonna say what's cold by you know what are we talking here what's the (laughs) and and here's the deal peter i you know my my skin has gotten uh considerably thinner the longer i've been out here uh on the west coast but uh, we don't have uh, a lot of insulation in our mm, buildings. Mm-hmm. Sure, uh, our heaters are not not great and and not consistent in the architecture and buildings throughout San Francisco. Right. So oftentimes, I will find that whatever the temperature is outside is about what the temperature is inside my apartment. Oof, uh, and it is. Not always very pleasant, but thankfully, as you said, it we're never in, you know, like the like 30, 40 degree weather. It's always like high 50s, low 60s, um, but still not, you know, when, when you sleep, yeah. you wake up with the dew on you in the morning. Yeah, with, there's like high 50s is by no means cold outside, but in your house, that's a little that's <laughs> that's not a number you like on the thermometer indoors, I, I, I feel so I, I, I can sympathize. Well, thank you. That's all I really wanted is for you and our other listeners <laughs> who might think that I am uh, weak uh, or lack constitution to know that uh, it is actually somewhat uncomfortable here every so often. It's not all glamour and <laughs> sunny skies all the time. Just most of it. Just most just, of the time. Just yeah. most of the time. Exactly. Well, Hit Factory Nation, today, Peter and I are going to be talking about another excellent Peter, uh, Peter Hyams who's a very good director uh, with a workmanlike approach to the craft. Uh, And he has plenty of movies uh, that you have almost certainly heard of, if not seen. I wouldn't say that he has really any genuine masterpieces under his belt, but his movies are always entertaining, well-made, and thoroughly enjoyable. And today, 
we're going to be talking about one of my personal favorites in the Peter Hyams filmography, the 1997 creature feature in a police procedural skin, The Relic. From the producer of Aliens and Terminator 2. 33% homo sapien. Pardon? What are you talking about? Gradual extinction of the human race. Very, very good one, and of course, uh, you know, you uh, honored again as a Chicago representative to be to be uh, talking about a, a Chicago classic, which, which in addition to being a Peter Hyams classic, is what this one is. Peter, what is your experience with the films of Peter Hyams? Is this your your introduction to him as a director, or or do you have a, a long standing relationship with him? This is the first of his that I saw. And I've only seen a couple, uh, and they're and they're kind of random. Which I mean is kind of in keeping with his filmography. Um, I I have seen uh, End of Days, um, mm-hmm. and I which I which I which I kind of like. Um, I I think it was it was relatively maligned as I recall when it came out in the late '90s, um, but I like it. Um, and uh, I've also seen the Presidio. Have you ever seen that movie? Oh, I have. In fact, I used to work in the Presidio for a oh, time, uh, and it was around that time that I discovered the movie. Uh, I watched it. I, I enjoyed it quite a bit for what it is. It's kind of a buddy cop movie with Mark Harmon and uh, Sean Connery. For those who yeah. haven't seen, uh, and then I promptly purchased uh, a full size poster. Uh, off of eBay of the movie and Hell framed yeah. it and put it in the offices uh, of the the restaurant that I worked at uh, out awesome. there. Yeah. No, it's I. I'm kind of I'm I'm sort of addicted to like uh, to 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 all sort of studio procedurals. That whole sort of late '80s and '90s run of like stu- of of star driven studio procedurals. I'll I, I lap them up. I, I watch even the crappy ones. Um and and uh, so that that of course always going to be a, a, a Peter Hyams touchstone for me is anywhere that happens. I think that's all of his I've seen though. Hmm. I, it's, and I've, and I'm missing of course, then some of the big ones, I think some of the, some of the better known I, I'm, I'm, I'm not familiar with. Yeah. I mean, his career, as you mentioned is uh, varied though. He definitely kind of settles into a couple of sort of grooves. He does some sort of sci-fi features specifically, um, Outland, the 1981 film with Sean Connery. Yeah. Uh, he also did 2010, the year we make contact, the sequel oh. to 2001. Um, maybe the only person who's ever made a sequel to a Stanley Kubrick film, if I'm if I'm remembering oh. correctly. Uh, well, I guess technically, uh, oh, it, you know, you got Doctor Mike Sleep Flanagan, kind of, yes. in a, yeah, in a it's <laughs> in a strange in a strange position there, but yeah. Right, right. I, I immediately thought of it and, and uh, found a counter to my point. Uh, but uh, not a not a terrible movie for what it is. Uh, it's definitely like the more terrestrial counterpoint and companion to the Stanley Kubrick sort of like celestial transcendent idea of humanity, yeah. where uh, you know the the star child basically just helps resolve the conflict between the Soviets and the Americans. Oh. Okay, sure. Uh, yeah, I mean, and there's more to it than that, of course. It, it is an interesting movie. Kirdulia comes back um, nice. and and is sort of this kind of celestial being throughout. Uh, but Roy Scheider's in it as well, who's always doing good work. It, it's it's a, yeah. not wrong. a terrible movie. Uh, but 
this one, I think the relic is something of an outlier. I don't think up to this point he had done a creature feature before a monster movie of sorts. Uh, and I wish that he had, and I wish that he had done more since because Me too. Uh, wa- watching the results, it's really strong work. And I, I know that it was, you know, relatively as, as many of his movies uh, were maligned critically. It did not fare much better commercially as well. I think it, uh, it yeah. might have barely eked out like uh, a break even kind of yeah. record here, but um, it, it was not a huge success. And, you know, that reputation, of course, came into the proceedings as I watched this and I have seen it before and I'll admit that the last time I watched it was like a laptop watch at like one in the morning at home Um, and so I had a sort of you know kind of mixed perspective on it well I'll tell you I watched this one with the lights all off in in the darkness of my living room on a a big 65 inch screen this last time and I've got to say like it makes all the difference seeing this thing projected as big as you can there's something about it that's just so remarkable. His his editing, uh, Hyams will talk about, but serves as his own cinematographer on this movie, yeah. as he has on mm-hmm. many of his features. Uh, and I think I was kind of like only half joking with you in in the DMs, but I was like, you know, not to get too like Kahe du Cinema on it, but I was I was like looking at the screen and I was like, Hyams is a painter. He's an impressionist. His his palette is he's he's painting with shadows. Yeah, there's genuinely. <laughs> so many hues of, of gray and black in this movie. Um, and it's, it's a really remarkable thing to watch. Absolutely. And, and I, I can very, I, I remember very distinctly my first experience of watching this movie and a, and a good example, I think of the way these kinds of reputations can be self-fulfilling. I mean, you mentioned the sort of crappy laptop watch and I remember very clearly picking out the relic, which I had not seen, on the basis of its reputation, because I had heard it was kind of crappy and I was sort of in the mood for, um, for a kind of mediocre, you know, I, I had, I had mm-hmm. a sort of, I had limited mental bandwidth available <laughs> and I was looking for a movie I felt would not strain it. Of um, course. Sometimes and, you get the itch. Yeah. Yeah. And I'm watching it and, and, and I had, I, you know, every once in a while I have this experience. It's just like, am I? a total sucker or is this thing kind of cooking? Like, is this, is something really <laughs> happening here? Um, and I think the, the, the cinematography and the lighting were really what kind of woke me up that, that, you know, that there were some of these interior, you know, interiors of the museum setting in darkness with these kind of shafts of light streaming in um, when I was, where, where I kind of, I kind of sat up and was like, huh, this is, this is doing something. This is, <laughs> this is, this is kind of coming together. Um, and I think that made me take the whole th- the whole project a little more seriously, and I think it did reward that. I think it I think it's a movie that does, uh, you know, that does meet, you know, if you raise your expectations for it, it does. I think it does deliver. It, it's it's perfectly primed to I think my sensibilities. This is uh, an embarrassing reveal, but once upon a time, you know, I had uh, like like a lot of young cinephiles ambitions to be involved in some sort of creative capacity with with sure. movie making, um, and I did a little bit of that, uh, you know, here and there. But uh, screenwriting was was a big passion of mine, and at yeah. the time, you know, this was I don't know twenty year old, twenty one year old Aaron. Sure, uh, I wrote. A uh, very shitty, like treatment, early draft of a 
a, a creature feature, a sort of monster movie awesome. that was uh, sort of embedded and and couched in a police procedural that at first, you know, is a detective uncovering these grisly murders uh, only to find out that the perpetrator is actually something supernatural and, and you know, kind of subhuman. Classic um, setup. The classic setup, you know, and uh, I I made that and I, I sort of fell in love with it and kind of put it on the back burner for many years uh, before I came to the relic. And then one day, like I said, you know, after a, a night out, put it on and I was like, there's no need for me to make this movie. It's already been made. It's, <laughs> it's it been is made. it is Peter Hyams, the relic. Um, yeah. And uh, and he does it very fashionably. It it looks really great we've already said it's serviceably performed by a lot of really great actors in this as well i think one reason uh, you know from what i understand one reason for relative box office underperformance at the time was understood to be uh you know no stars um and and there certainly are no sort of a-list leading names in this movie but the people that the people hyam's got do a great job you know, uh, T- Tom Sizemore is pretty great in the movie. I yeah. think actually, it's a pretty restrained performance from him, um, and and very much what he's called upon to do is kind of, you know, appear competent and sort of in command of the situation, and and uh, kind of project that, you know, veteran cop who knows what he's dealing with thing, which is of course he doesn't, you know, but yeah. but um, and I think he does he does really well with it. Uh, James Whitmore is fun, I think, in the movie. Yes, just, absolutely. Yeah, that, that's a fun performance. And I mean, we've also got the the terrific Penelope Ann Miller yeah, in this great. movie. She's terrific. Um, very much enjoy her in uh, Carlito's Way. Yeah, uh, I, th- I think she's terrific in that. And uh, she also is somebody who I, this is an interesting phenomenon. I don't know if you've ever noticed this with specifically with like mid budget movies of like the late 80s early 90s but when you kind of had like a promising upstart young actress like this who was uh very attractive and and you know like kind of working on establishing a career they get kind of caught in this cycle between playing this sort of character like kind of like the quasi love interest or like sidekick in these sorts of like genre movies while also playing like adult daughter to like the old guard of Hollywood. Yeah. Uh, and, and she's done it twice over. She played Marlon Brando's daughter in a movie called the freshman from 1990. Oh, huh. And then yeah. in, in 91, a, a movie called others, Pe- other people's money. She plays Gregory Peck's stepdaughter as well. It's, it's just a straight, I, I think of like Laura Linney. Yeah, you know. uh, La- yeah. Laura Linney does it with like Joe Don Baker in Congo. And then she does it with um, Clint, Clint Eastwood in Absolute yeah. Power. Absolute and, Power. And, you know, it's just like, it, it is, it's a living and it seems like the kind of roles that these kind of young women can take on. But I, I don't know. There's this strange cohort of like cast of adult daughters who are all made up of these kinds of actors. Yeah, you're right. And it's a kind of interesting side effect of that old guard still working very heavily at the mid-budget level, I think, during this period, you know, that, yeah. that you have these guys, you have these guys around who are who are Clint's age or, or you know, whatever. And, and um, it's suddenly now appropriate for the lead in these movies to have adult children. And, and that, that then becomes a <laughs> that then becomes a casting niche, which is kind of strange. But and it isn't I mean, Laura Linney obviously kind of breaks out of this eventually and gets, you know, gets, gets a pretty uh, rich career with a, Mm -hmm. with a, with a good range of roles. But um, 
it's, you know, these are high profile movies and you get to act opposite big stars, but sometimes these roles can be kind of thankless, you know? Yeah. Um, whereas something like the lead in the relic isn't really, I think this is a, this is a rel- this is a pretty good role. Yeah, I completely agree. Tom Sizemore too, you know, I mean, he, we talked about him on the show before, you know, he, he passed away not too long ago and, and yeah. he is somebody who lived life very hard. You know, he was, he yes. was not a, a particularly great guy. He has a, a pretty spotty record of, of, you know, he, he acted on impulses and he was kind of, kind of a, a shitty guy and a shitty person to a lot of people. Um, yes. and you know, it died younger than he probably should have as a result of a lot of his, uh, substance abuse and just his, his kind of problems. But, for a little while there in the nineties, you know, like he was doing pretty remarkable work with yeah. just about everybody. You know, he was in what point break he did fucking strange days at this time, natural born oh, killers, yeah. true romance. Heat's around uh, here, right? Yeah, he is, is a few years just before this too. devil in a blue dress as well. That same mm-hmm. year he, in 1995 alone, he was in strange days, heat and devil in a blue dress. That's kind of remarkable. Roles. That's yeah. yeah. Which is, of course, looks like an like a like a stunning trio, uh, you know. Now, not necessarily all equally well well received, you know, in the moment. Um, right. Not necessarily all received as well as they should have been. That's always an interesting phenomenon, I think. When when you when you see, um, I, I think Colin Farrell in the in the early to mid two thousands, I think of as having another one of these things where where in retrospect it looks like an enormously fertile period where he's right. making great movies with like all star directors, um, and then these movies mostly hold up very well. And I remember at the time it was it was sort of like wow he's sort of. Um, you know, he's wasting his A-list status. He's had, he's had very bad luck with his, you know, that's, uh, he's in this, he's in this Miami Vice movie that doesn't work at all. You know, this is, uh, you know, <laughs> mm, that's Colin, mm. poor, poor guy, you know, that's, yeah. you know, a new world was a little strange, you know, it had, it, there was this kind of weird run. Um, right. And you're, you're talking about the, the great classics like SWAT, uh, Joel Schumacher's phone booth. Naturally. Hey, uh, actually, I really Daredevil. like phone booth. Let's let, let, the, let the record show. <laughs> oh, I mean, Hit, Hit Factory uh, listeners will will know, and, and anyone who follows us on the internet knows uh, of Carly and I's collective affinity yeah, for that movie, a, and specifically a, Carly's. She's obsessed with phone booth. So. Yeah, we, she and I have talked about it. This is a pro phone booth space. This is... Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> But, you know, with, with Tom Sizemore specifically, like, yeah, you know, he has this very fertile period, um, like you said, mm-hmm. you know, kind of uh, mixed responses in, in the moment. Um, yeah. And he's not he's not really a leading man type, no. you know, he he functions much better in these supporting roles. Um, I, I love him as Horvath in Saving Private Ryan. I think he adds a lot of color and a, a lot of energy to that movie. That's much, much needed. But what he does offer here, I feel like, is he does feel like a kind of shithead veteran Chicago detective. Yeah. Like, <laughs> yep. Ending up, ending up coming in handy, but kind of a prick and, and, you know, not necessarily, you know, bringing a high level of, uh, what, 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 what one say intellectual gravitas to proceedings. That's not the kind of, that's not the yeah. kind of weight he's bringing. And yeah, it, it, it does, I think come through pretty clearly. And I mean, the, the movie's, you know, strokes are, are pretty broad in terms of its characterization. Yeah. Um, and, and this is a movie that I think works in spite of those things. This is generally the kind of film where I would get a little bit, you know, kind of hung up on some of its dumber qualities. But 
in the presence of this sort of movie and just watching kind of the technical filmmaking at work, mm-hmm. I, I let so much of it slide. But I mean, you really do get introduced immediately in this movie to like, you know, oh, Sizemore is superstitious. He doesn't walk under yeah. ladders or step right. over bodies. He's got a lucky bullet. And then you've got Penelope Ann Miller, who uh, is so anti-superstition that she even like degrades her colleagues at the museum that she right. works at who are anthropologists. Yeah, which yeah is like- right. <laughs> She's literally like, why, why are we letting this guy, guy go study these, this, this nonsense? It's like, oh, you mean like, like un- uncontacted peoples in the Amazon and whatnot? Like that's, you know, yeah. Like, like needs- ancient cultures. And, yeah. And- <laughs> who cares about any of that shit? Let's, you know. Let's do more evolutionary biology. Right. And, and Peter, you're an academic. I know this isn't particularly your field, but yeah. do you find this conflict in academia? Do you find the the chemists and the biologists at war with the with the anthropologists all the time? I think there is very much a type, and it's not a universal type. There, you know, certainly certainly any any of your any of your listeners who have advanced degrees from STEM fields know that I value your work, but there is <laughs> We have none, by the way. There's no way anyone with advanced <laughs> degrees in STEM are listening to our show. It's not that kind of program. It's, you know, it, 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 there there is definitely the type of the you know, STEM practitioner or the sort of hard science practitioner who really does not think that humanities or social science subjects produce like real knowledge at all. That's definitely a type, you okay. know, um, and that, and that sort of, you know, who, who kind of quietly believes that what's going on in all of those sort of, uh, sort of soft departments is, is, is all nonsense. That's definitely a real type. I think, <laughs> um, I, I kind of like the, the little academic subplots in this. I mean, kind of are, are kind of fun. I think that the Penelope Ann Miller's, uh, you know, rivalry with this, with this colleague of hers, who's going for the same grant is kind of a funny B plot. <laughs> Yeah, I, I actually really did enjoy that one. And I mean, this is something I, I was reading about. It's it's so noteworthy, I guess, that it manages to make uh, the very sparse Wikipedia page on this film. But Penelope Ann Miller, uh, the character who plays that uh, rival colleague, mm-hmm. uh, Choi mm-hmm. Moy Lo, mm-hmm. uh, and also Linda Hunt, who is in this film, yeah. uh, Oscar winner Linda Hunt. Yes, indeed. Um, the three of them collaborate on this film just a couple years after all three of them also appear in the Arnold Schwarzenegger vehicle kindergarten cop by Ivan oh, Reitman. Funny. That is, <laughs> I, of course they are. Yeah. Aren't they? That's not a combination you would expect to recur twice. That's, that's, that's a, that's a strange little piece of serendipity. Yeah. And I tried to look it up and figure out like, okay, is it because Gail Ann Hurd produced both of them? Is it because they had like, you know, some sort of synchronicity between production teams, what have you? Insofar as I can tell, not the case, purely just a result of like a, a casting decision. I mean, maybe some conversations between actors and, and director and, and casting department. But otherwise, I, I cannot find any evidence anywhere that it was like the work of one single person manifesting this and was like, you know, who made a great triptych uh, was, was this, this group from kindergarten cop. Let's make sure to get them in our monster movie. Those are always strange. I I'm, I'm really always fascinated by, you know, um, you know, you'll, you'll be watching some, some procedural from the late nineties and there'll be like six actors from the wire in it. Like before the (laughs) wire was on, you know, Um, and I, I'm always, it's, it's, it sometimes can be really hard to identify what exactly the connection is because your head goes to, okay, maybe casting director or whatever, but then you find that there's no casting director in common. 
Uh, it's just, I mean, and some of it is just, you know, certain types work for certain kind. It's like, yeah, well, you know, they're all playing, playing cop type guys. And then the wire came out, you know, but, but sometimes it's just much stranger than that. And this is an example of being much stranger than that. This yeah, is- it's always fun like that. I mean, it reminds me of uh, James Mangold's Copland, which has mm-hmm. no less than six actors who will go on to star in The Sopranos just yeah. a couple years later. It's crazy. Um, and sometimes it's deliberate. Like we're watching uh, Justified right now as well. And, right. uh, you know, you get Ray McKinnon and, and some of the other Deadwood cast. Oh, yeah. Kind of recurring and showing up because yeah. Timothy Oliphant's in it. But uh, yeah, in a situation like this, I was just uh, I, I found it bizarre in a really kind of enchanting and fun way that, that is fun, uh, I wasn't yeah. expecting. And Linda Hunt's fun in the movie too. She's that, that's a, that's a role with a, with a kind of outsized presence. You know, it's, it's um, I think her role really makes it feel like more of an ensemble than a kind of two hander, which is interesting. She has a lot of fun. You already mentioned James Whitmore as well, mm-hmm. who is also an Oscar nominated performer twice over. Uh, he, uh, was in a film and maybe you've seen it, Peter, uh, a William A. Wellman film from 1949 called battleground about the 101st airborne, uh, and and the battle at Bastogne. Um, but I, I love this tagline and I think that this is a tagline that maybe we can adopt for this show as well. Uh, it's the guts, gags, and glory of a lot of wonderful guys. Nice guts, gags, and glory. That's, I mean, that's everything you need, really. That's the whole that's that's your that's all your major food groups, <laughs> cinema wise. I mean, I agree completely. Guts, gags, glory, and we get a, a plenty of that in this film. Oh yeah, it's Margo. Oh, who have you brought me? Uh, policeman, Lieutenant D'Agosta. Well, how goes the gradual extinction of the human race, Lieutenant? Oh, I'm doing what I can to keep it orderly. Uh, you and the Lieutenant are kindred spirits. He's very superstitious. I don't know about Barry. Well, you must excuse Margot, Lieutenant. She believes that science must destroy Nithin as a consequence. She has very little patience with superstitious people like us. Margot, did I ever tell you about my experiences with the Kai tribe in Bechuanaland? Yes, more than once. Haven't told him. The Kai tribe, Lieutenant, believed that headaches were caused by sorcery. And the kinfolk of the Headache victim would identify the sorcerer and then go off and murder him. Of course, the kinfolk of the sorcerer would feel they had to avenge his death, so they'd go and in turn kill the headache victim. And I'm sure you can imagine how it eventually all turned out. What's that? Well, it's a medical miracle. Everybody stopped having headaches. <laughs> Lieutenant, how would a superstitious police officer possibly want with an old fossil like me? He wants to know about John Whitney. Well, John's an anthropologist. He's in Brazil studying ancient tribes, their rituals, their environmental and social relations, their culture. When was the last time you heard from him? Oh, I haven't had actual contact with him for months, but just yesterday we received a wonderful artifact. Yeah, I I took a look at it. Uh, That artifact's rather important to me, Lieutenant, because it may help to illuminate a scientific theory I've been expounding for some time, the Callisto effect. What's that? It's a commonly held belief that uh, life evolved gradually by natural selection. Dr. Frock argues that sometimes there are sudden evolutionary changes that create a grotesque and short-lived aberrant species. Okay, so John Whitney's down in Brazil studying ancient tribal rituals. Could any of these rituals have anything to do with, say, uh, ripping out the human hypothalamus? Beg your pardon? Human hypothalamus? Discussing 
a little bit more of the the background of this movie. This is also very interesting. So it's it's based on a novel of yes. the same name minus the the. They took uh, Justin Timberlake's advice and just called it Relic. <laughs> uh, yeah. It's it's written by Douglas Preston and Lincoln Child, yes. and it's it's the first novel in a, a series of novels. There's also a uh, a sequel to this novel called Reliquaries. Um, and, and some other ones as well. But they are all the, the, the binding agent of all of these books is an FBI agent named uh, Aloysius Pendergast. A Harry Potter ass name. Yeah, I was going to say that genuinely. <laughs> <laughs> I, would be, I would be going by Al if I were an Aloysius, I think. I don't think you can, you can just go by Aloysius in your everyday life. It, it seems like a popular name in this kind of literature for whatever reason. There's also a David Baldacci character named Aloysius Archer that I discovered that has a series of novels as well. There seems to be a thing with these kinds of like paperback adventure books or or paperback sort of thriller series or detective books you know books with like a recurring a recurring detective character there seems to be a thing where they like they like incongruously outlandish names i i think i think aloysius just seems to just must work really well as a kind of incongruously (laughs) you know the one that the one that always pops into my head i think the classic example of this recently have you ever seen that show bosch I have not seen Bosch, but a lot of people have been uh, recommending it to me. I'm a big Titus Welliver fan. He rocks, um, of course. Yeah. Uh, again, Deadwood, Dead, Deadwood uh, alum, Titus Welliver. Mm-hmm. Um, no, I, I have not actually seen the show, but but the the character's name, the, the Titus Welliver character's name is literally Hieronymus Bosch. Right, That's, right. <laughs> and <laughs> and he goes by Harry for short. And I think there I, there is something I think. I don't know what I don't know what this Agent Pendergast character is like at all in in these books. He doesn't appear in this adaptation. That's a character yeah. that was cut uh, cut from this movie um, to focus on the, the Tom Sizemore character. Um, but you know, I think there is there is something to that. Oh, you know, his name's Hieronymus Bosch, but he's a he's a blue collar cop who goes by Harry. You know, and I I feel like novelists like that kind of incongruity. Yeah, um, and I guess Aloysius is just one of those. It's, you know, one of those ones that works well for that. And then you can shorten it to Al like a normal person. You can actually give them like a real human being's name when you, when you, you know, sort of actually get down to brass tacks. Yeah, of course. Whenever you're writing something, you, you always like to have some sort of shorthand or nickname that everyone can call your character in, in your novel or screenplay, right? Um, but as you mentioned, uh, Aloysius Pendergast does not make an appearance in no. the film The Relic. And I admire this i think more uh film adaptations should make a point to remove a principal character from the novel in the film adaptation i think it would work well it's a it's and it's a it's kind of a you know it's to the extent it's kind of a fuck you to the extent that this is an ongoing series you know what i mean this is not (laughs) (laughs) it's not just a principal character but like well you know that's Hope you weren't planning any sequels to this based on your other novels because (laughs) (laughs) because your main guy is not it's not on hand. Yeah. Well, and, you know, I, I think that it uh, is a kind of admirable decision on behalf of the the filmmakers that uh, that they're making this for, I think, pure reasons as like a, a standalone, just like solid creature feature rather than something that is intended to be a sort of serialized or, or you know, kind of multi uh, film 
sort of project. Yeah. Um, and granted, you know, we were not as subsumed in like the culture of cinematic universes and, and continuity yeah. the way we are now. But uh, I, I do appreciate that they're like, I don't really give a shit how many of yeah. these Pendergast novels there are. We're just we're just making the relic like we're just yeah. making a monster movie here. And, and it, you know, I, I can't speak to the, um, the the screenwriter's motivation, but I, I sort of working backwards from the product, it does seem like kind of a no brainer uh, to have a sort of um, a, a more sort of local blue collar protagonist. Right. There's it, it's yeah. un, it's very uncluttered. It's sort of everybody's these are all sort of Chicago people that the, nobody's nobody's flying in from D.C. There's no there's no dialogue about jurisdiction, you know. Um, and, and I think that's a, it's a very uncluttered choice of protagonist to build it around, to build it around the detective who would already be on the scene, um, you know, who can sort of butt heads with the mayor and, and have a kind of David and Goliath, you know, kind of situation going. Um, and, and so you can see, I mean, and it's, it's clearly not purely to be economical in terms of number of characters, because there are kind of a surprising number of, you know, uh, number of characters for such a stripped down, you know, let's see some people get eaten type uh, type film, I think. Especially because, as, as I understand in the novel, he doesn't even really show up until like the, the kind of latter third of it. It's it is the the procedural that we get yeah, in the film right. and then here comes this uh this fbi agent because you know we we need this kind of stand-up guy who's you know got the goods and and has i mean clearly you know it, it almost sounds like there's sort of like a pretense that he is someone maybe more educated more sure. uh you know kind of tactful in his approach to to police work and and what have you but uh yeah get him out of there keep this thing kind of grounded yeah. and gritty especially because mm-hmm. it's a good chicago picture and exactly. uh y- you know this movie details a a hideous beast terrorizing the the good people of chicago uh the beast's name is former mayor Lori lightfoot i think is what it's <laughs> Uh, sucks to suck, Lori. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but uh, you know, I guess apparently this this film was uh, initially, and the the, the novel itself the is set at the York. American uh, yeah Museum of Natural History in New York. Yeah. Uh, and I think this this shows the just the the difference in predilection of sort of the intelligentsia of you know the the East Coast versus the good down home like mm-hmm. just you know, Midwest sensibility where uh, the Museum of Natural History didn't want anything to do with the yeah. project. They uh, they thought that it would, one, make the museum look bad because the administrators in the film are not portrayed in a particularly gracious light. No. Uh, yeah. It's kind of a Jaws scenario, right? Where right. they, they want to keep the beaches open even while there's someone, uh, you know, something killing everybody. Yep. Um, and they were also worried that it might scare children away from wanting to come and visit the museum. Very strange concern, in my opinion. I don't, <laughs> yeah. I, I, that's, it just seems kind of wide of the mark to me. I, I don't, I mean, first of all, because like, I, I think the natural child response to something like this is that it's like sick as hell, right? I think that like this, it, it rocks that there might be a monster there that would rule, I think, for most, for most kids. Um, yeah. But also just, I think, not association that's going to be made strongly anyway I, don't, I just don't see it all. i don't know yeah it, you know it's like it's one of those things where uh, you're you're right i mean like uh 
as a kid, I mean, this is an R-rated, you know, like yeah. mid-budget monster movie. It's not exactly something that a lot of children are going to be making their way to, you know. Um, I, I, I remember it very vividly being on on home video and seeing this, you know, VHS tape out at like the the Blockbuster and the other video rental places near me. Um, but even then I was like, oh, it's, you know, museums. That's cool. Like, I like yeah. the vibe of this. It's It's got a cool kind of atmosphere to it. Um, and of course, you know, like, the the fine folks at the Field Museum Chicago were like that sounds sick as hell let's do yes. it <laughs> <laughs> yeah and they were right to do it goddamn it they, they were right they were right they to were do correct. it uh, y- you know like I mentioned uh, I, I'm a fellow Midwesterner Peter I I grew up in St Louis but uh, spent many many a time in Chicago have been to the Field Museum a lot uh, oh God, I love so the Field much. Museum it's like one of my favorite favorite places to go and visit anytime I'm there um, and regale. Uh, newcomers with uh, stories of Sue the T Rex. Yeah, hell yeah. That's for for a while. My my uh, my parents made a made a when I was a kid made a donation to the I, I, fairly modest I think, but to the to the big sort of you know restore Sue and get her on display kind of uh, kind of budget at the Field Museum. So for a while, my name was in like tiny letters on the base of the base of Sue with all the other amazing uh, with all the other donors. I was very excited about that. But the Field Museum, I've spent tons of time at the Field Museum. Fantastic museum. Uh, And it does have exactly the right mix of stuff for this movie. Because it does have, it's a very natural place to have both cultural anthropology and, you know, evolutionary biology happening because that, mm-hmm. that that's very they do not have to do any work to get those two things in play the field museum very much always has this stuff going on um yeah and so that that internal structure totally works for the movie very very well absolutely and it's i mean it's designed so well too you know it's kind of built around that sort of like center square yeah. of the museum that has <laughs> those those big structures like like the t-rex skeleton and, and other things in it and then has yeah the fighting you know, elephants ba- classic exactly the, the the basement levels too I, the thing that i love about the field museum and this is kind of the case with a lot of places but it has such an extensive collection of all of these taxidermied beasts you know yes. uh in in one of its wings and and it's very educational i mean it's the, the closest you know i will ever come to like the man eaters of savo like, i was gonna say the lions, lions of savo are still there yeah <laughs> um and and you know like a, a giant like a, a elephant seal downstairs too they you know a, like stuff they got a stuffed and, narwhal down there they I, do i had certainly not ever seen a narwhal depicted before see, before seeing one at the field museum Absolutely. And it's this incredible thing that I I really love about it that's also sort of kind of deeply unsettling about it that I've always felt, which is like it it, it does reveal that that imperial core to so much of like science and, and, you know, specifically like Western uh, study and and inquiry of a certain Mm -hmm. age because it's, you know, it's an older museum. And a lot of these things were from a period of time where this was very much the norm, like go out into the wild and kill something and bring it back so that we can we can stuff it and put it on display. Um, But there is something still that is uh, so mesmerizing about seeing those things all in one place and just the 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 breadth of you know, the, the animal kingdom that you can find in that building. Yeah. I, I, I think you're absolutely right. And I think one, one thing that really struck me on this, on this rewatch of, um, of, of this movie, this whole subgenre, I think of, you know, uh, 
African or Amazonian exploration uncovers some, you know, this, this in the sort of mummy tradition mm-hmm. of, you know, uh, there, there is, a, I think, a kind of always implicit kind of anti-colonial critique there, you, you yes. know, not necessarily coming from strongly anti-colonial filmmakers or institutions, but, but always sort of, you know, the not so not so thinly veiled subtext in a, in, a, in a lot of these cases, and the relic I think is absolutely one of these. Is that you know peop, is that the sort of uh, the reach of these institutions, the reach of these Western institutions has exceeded you know has exceeded its grasp, um, and something th- these are the, a museum like the Field Museum, very very much a kind of imperial space. Um, which collects, you know, quite literally the, you know, the, the trophies of, of, of hunts. And then also, you know, artifacts, I mean, relics, you know, what's the name, the relic and, and, and these, these relics that are gathered in museums. Uh, You know, one thing that I found very striking on this watch again, the, the, what's the, the big exhibit is like superstition, right? That's the big, that's the big (laughs) exhibit. And it's full of, of what are regarded as superstitious, you know, there's a ladder that you're not supposed to walk under, right. you know, there's, there's, I'm sure there's like a broken mirror in there or something and, you know, but then there's also just quite literal, you know, cultural artifacts from other societies, you yeah. know? So this idea of superstition is being held to encompass both, you know, throw salt over your shoulder in the modern world and the worship practices of, you know, of peoples who live other places. And I think that, you know, it's kind of, it's kind of offensive on its face, but this is nothing if not a movie about people being punished for that kind of arrogance, right? This is, um, and a genre, I think, where people often get punished for this kind of overweening, you know, sense that they can, you know, categorize and tame and control other societies and other social groups. Yeah, I mean, it's, you know, it it does an interesting thing in this film, which is, you know, provides a scientific explanation to something that is, uh, you know, observed within a a mythology and sort of a superstitious practice by, uh, you know, a a tribe of people in, you know, exotic places from around the world in this case, you know, like in the Amazon in Brazil. Uh, And you're right, like, I, I did notice in the superstition exhibit, it was like, at, at first I was, I was getting hung up on it and I was like, they're, they're conflating so much shit here. Like, uh, at, at one point, at one point, Linda yeah. Hunt's character is like, Oh, now we're in like the pagan forest and there's pan. And right over there is the Kathoga like beast from the Amazon tribe. I'm like, wait a minute. Like yeah, <laughs> uh, all, all of this should not be in the same place in this exhibit. And yet uh, I think that you're right, that there is sort of this, you know, sardonic undercurrent of like, uh, punishing these people for this kind of thing and and sort of almost like you know laughing at at their arrogance of it and, and their misunderstanding this conflation of all of these different practices and you know different things that have spiritual components to them or or you know were worshipped by different cultures and and the way it's all kind of turned into this exoticizing sort of big exhibit for you know the the wealthy and the bourgeois of <laughs> the bourgeoisie yeah. of this culture. So key, I think, so key that this exhibit is not just like, oh, we want, we have a new exhibit here, but it's like the centerpiece of a fundraising push, right? This is, yes. the, the, you know, this, this Kathoga, they, they're, they're like, all, all they see from this extraordinary artifact that they've restored is the opportunity to kind of uh, uh, 
enhance very slightly this exhibit that, that exists to bring money into their institution, you know, and, and, and the, the, the sort of keep the beaches open aspect that you mentioned is, oh, the, the gala fundraiser must go on, you know, the, <laughs> the, the, the donors must be, you know, must be given their big red carpet events. So they feel important and keep giving, keep giving us money. It's an incredibly myopic, you know, when, when you're dealing with some sort of like evolutionary anomaly, that's, that's, eating people's hypothalamus, you know, it's, it's, it's a, it's a ludicrously myopic thing to be focused on at that time, you know, and I think that's not an accident. It's kind of messy in terms of like the narrative, like how the superstition plays into the actual reality of this thing, you know, like there's, there's not really a, a cost benefit addressed in terms of, you know, whether or not Penelope Ann Miller's character, who is like, you know, very, uh, skeptical and and very anti-myth you know at one point uh it's it's spoken that you know she believes that it's science's job to destroy myth um and then she has to you know face down this this creature um but again you know it's it's not uh, it's not some sort of like mystical unexplainable no element they do a, a, a lot of legwork to provide you with the scientific root of why this creature exists and you know the mutation from this particular strain of bacteria that's on these leaves that creates this monster and uh you know spoilers up front here it's it's actually you know one of our uh anthropological explorers who ends up drinking uh uh, a, a spiked uh, Panera Bread lemonade in in the Brazilian uh, rainforest and uh turns into this horrible beast and then, you know, absent those those chemicals that it needs to continue its life cycle, uh, hunts down human beings and starts extracting their brains to suck out all these chemicals from the human hypothalamus. It's it's a great setup. It's good. It it's, is. It's, um, but but it's also not it's not based in like you know like, like Tom Sizemore's character who has like a lucky bullet and you know like you said doesn't yeah. doesn't step over bodies like it doesn't take him like believing on the basis of like faith or anything no. for him to recognize or acknowledge the monster. No. And, and Penelope and Miller's assumptions, as you said, are, are fundamentally not challenged. You know, this is, this is, it, it sort of seems, you know, on, on a kind of screenwriting one Oh one level that this will be about her confronting something that her, you know, uh, uh, her sort of narrow minded scientism can't, can't contain. But that's not how it ends up. It, no. <laughs> it ends up totally contained by her narrow-minded scientism. It's 100%, you know, right down the line. Um, which is, you know, it, it's it's nice in that it puts her in a heroic position. And this is a movie that puts, uh, you know, that, that, that puts its female lead in a much more directly heroic position down the stretch than I think a lot of movies of its kind. Yeah. Um, but it doesn't, you know, uh, yeah, that, that kind of the thematic connection between her skepticism and and the phenomenon that they're encountering doesn't really pay off um because because she is basically she is basically affirmed in <laughs> in her view that you know if she can sequence these things dna that if everything's dna then then you can understand it right and i mean it, it results in a lot of fun you know 90s computer software moments yes where we get just like you know a lot like jurassic park where it's you know a young girl literally just scrolling through a series of connected folders like on a yeah (laughs) on a a computer like this is the same where you just see uh, sequences of, of dna running and it tells us there's a gecko here and 
you know, there's a, a spider there. There's human DNA here, but but it is uh, it is a, a fun movie, just kind of like visually when we're in these kind of catacombs of research within the field museum and all of this is happening. Yeah. And, and, and on that subject, there's a, there's a, a moment that I was, or a series of moments, I guess, that, that I found really striking. I was kind of fascinated by how many times the movie cuts back to the restorationist rebuilding the Cathoga yes. idol, the actual <laughs> relic itself. Yeah. They are like determined to show this woman at work and and it's it's kind of, it's kind of funny to me because I think if you if you think about it, it's completely incoherent that that scene keeps happening. Absolutely, like, they're they're cutting to her doing her work at a time when like the museum has been locked down due to a series of grisly murders, and there doesn't seem to be any. <laughs> like, it's you know it's 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 very likely a scene that was intended to take place at one moment in the film and has mm-hmm. been edited you know edited out to a sort of broader thing. But I kind of like it, first of all, because it's very visually striking. It's sort of bathed in blue light the whole time she's working, and it makes a nice kind of visual counterpoint to the the other scenes. But it's also just, man, they really are, like, they really want to show you that some hardworking research professional has had to unearth this this thing. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, there's a lot of moments like that where there are sort of these kind of like errant threads that you you can kind of conceive were intended for other purposes initially and then found, you know, purchases as, as different things. Early on in the film, you know, when uh, Sizemore is still investigating these as potentially like a like a cartel like murder, yeah. you know, because he, you know, there's all these dead bodies in the bilge of a ship that just came yeah. in from Brazil. He's talking a lot about his fight with his ex-wife and not getting custody of a dog. And yeah. it never comes back. Like there's never no. any reconciliation with the with the wife or, you know, any reward for him, like going through all of this to get it, it's just there for like to kind of paper over, you know, and have have dialogue happen before these uh, between these characters. Yeah. And, and likewise, you imagine that there may have been some other like m- more important part for this particular like lab assistant to do in the movie. She shows right. up a couple times early on and then she's constructing the Cathoga like stone relic. And it really just provides like interstitials to cut between yeah. different moments when we're jumping around to various narratives. And, and you know, you wonder if there were more of these on the cutting room floor or if they had hoped to maybe have a little bit more of this kind of coverage. Because later on, there's at the climax of this movie, I, I don't know if you picked up on this in terms of its pacing or, or its construction, but the, the Cathoga beast mm-hmm. seems to be both in yes. the central area of the museum in the research laboratory area and in the tunnels mm-hmm. all at the same time, sort of simultaneously pursuing every one of our characters uh, w- within like seconds of, of one another. Yeah, absolutely. I almost had the sense. I have no idea if this is true, um, but, but from, from the way they talk about the, the creature and, you know, the sort of de- the references to the DNA sequencing and from that effect, I almost had the sense that they sort of operated under this assumption that there actually were multiple creatures and, and yes. that that sort of just disappeared from, from the narrative. And I, I'm wondering if there was a point where there was supposed to be the, 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 the creature that evolved from the, the, the scientist who came from, who, who came from the ship mm-hmm. and they have to do some fairly, they have to introduce like subterranean tunnels running from, <laughs> uh, fr- from, from, from the port to, um, right. To, to, to the field museum in order to get 
it, it, it's a little inelegant because these because these crates do arrive from the Amazon, but the creature is not in the crates, right? It's it's um, it's it's just full of leaves and the Kathoga idol. And I kind of got the sense that there was maybe supposed to be a second creature that had like fed on those leaves mm-hmm. in the way that that bug or, or fed on the fungus or whatever it is in the way that 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 huge bug that Penelope Ann Miller kills does, you know, yeah. that, oh, maybe some kind of lizard also did that. And that's what's now going on. And they clearly dispensed with that, I think, because there, there isn't really an indication by the end that there's more than one creature, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, but, yeah, I think in the way in the way that climax is kind of edited, I think you might be able to see the remnants of, of, of a second creature somewhere. Yeah. I mean, it's interesting that you say that. I, I believe that, uh, there are multiple creatures, multiple Kathoga beasts, uh, mm-hmm. which have a different name in the novel. And that is ah. revealed in the sequel or, or maybe as like, kind of like the stinger of sure. the end of the, of the novel relic that they discover that there are, multiple creatures and then their their pursuit of and attempts to stop those monsters becomes that's the uh, sequel, reliquaries right? so my, my guess is maybe they they had in mind to do kind of like a, a similar sort of sequel right. teaser like that in this film um right. and then just dropped it in favor of you know a, a great kind of 90s uh monster movie ending where it just it just kind of ends it did yeah. nothing really happen like it's the the credits roll over the field museum as like you know we get this like helicopter shot yeah i mean the movie works in spite of all these things which is uh, again the thing that i like find so enjoyable about it and that i was so taken with this time is that there's all these easy nitpicks and yet the whole, like, you know, when you watch it, 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 it winds up, you, you're kind of putting it, you know, back in your mind and just yeah. embracing what you're seeing on screen. There is this very kind of like sensorial experience happening, lots of like rapid cutting. And as we mentioned, yep. a lot of like shadows and, and kind of backlit spaces. And, and it's just like this array of images that are sort of like flying in your face that wind up cohering into something that is, uh, I mean, very exciting to watch. Yes. Yeah. And, th- and these quest, you know, these questions that we're bringing up about, you know, well, how is this scene happening at the same time as this scene? How's the creature here? These don't really get asked in the moment. You know, the thing is, the thing's very well constrained. You know, it's, I've seen this movie now multiple times. And so I can start, I see, and, and, and as you, you know, you, you point, I don't even think I, uh, I'm not even sure I consciously registered until you said it that there were pretty clearly, you know, the, the creatures pretty clearly in two places at once, um, because it's it's pretty it, it moves briskly, um, you know. Uh, these relatively broadly drawn characters are generally interacting in pretty uh, in pretty you know entertaining ways, um, mm-hmm. and and you know, you get enough information about each character to know how you should feel about the prospect of their messy demise and very little else, <laughs> you know, that's basically, yeah. is this, is this going to be one of the, one of the sad ones or one of the funny ones is basically the, the question asked in each character's case, you know? Yes. And that's a, that's a creature feature classic, right? Is that you, sure, you're going to be sad about some of the people getting eaten and then some of them you're going to be like, ha, you know? fuck that guy you know <laughs> and, yeah and i mean i mean the the movie clearly has a, a really good handle on that particular uh like duality in in this case too you know you you get the early scene where the security guard is killed while he's smoking a joint yeah and, and again like 
any number of horror movie staples here. Uh, the black man being offed first in the yes. film, uh, being punished for his indulgences, you know, mm-hmm. like uh, smoking weed. You know, it might as well be like teenagers having sex out in the woods or, yep. you know, drinking alcohol before they're 21, whatever it is. You know, it's this kind of like uh, reactionary impulse of like punishment for these sorts of sins. But you do kind of, I mean, you, you worry about that character. You care about it a little bit. He seems like a nice guy. Everyone sort of, you know, like mourns yeah. his death. But the scene where Sizemore is looking upon the body mm-hmm. and Penelope Ann Miller's character is unassuming at this point and walks into the restroom and sees the decapitated corpse of the yeah. security guard and the brain on the floor. The brain, yeah, just chilling, yeah. The scream she lets out mm-hmm. is so funny like it's it's like literally like a laugh out loud moment just like you know she kind of like wanders in bebop in and then just a blood curdling like howl as they're like get her out of here get her out of here and there is uh there's clearly like a a a cheekiness to this there's clearly like a a sense of humor running throughout where you get the sense that they they know and have a good handle on like the tenor that each of these characters is striking and how to play it for an audience Right, and and you and you need to put some people in play to get picked off, right? Or and 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 they give a nice array of you know all oh, the okay the, these these cops are pretty nice guys, and then you know her uh, you know the mayor's kind of a dick, and and you know the the <laughs> um, uh, Penelope Ann Miller's rival uh, who's who's competing for her grant. He's yep. a, you know he's a, a sycophant, you know. Um, uh, and there's these wealthy donors, however you feel about wealthy donors, that's your, you know, you can attach there. And so then, yeah, you, you can process all of these levels of danger with a, with a sort of wide variety of, of, of possibility. Yeah. And the movie has a lot of fun with this, you know, like mm-hmm. that, that, that rival character has a, a great scene where he like kind of runs into the superstition exhibit while the water is like pouring down on them from, yeah any number of sources pipes bursting you know like whatever they are the rain outside what have you and a, a great great reflection shot of the yes. beast that that kind of off so good uh, and, and you're right like there is like a a thing that i was noticing about this movie and and you know the the great late uh, roger ebert had a, an interesting observation about the film in his review where he was uh, I th- he very much enjoyed it, by the way. I think it was like a th- three-star review for this film. And, nice. You know, mentioned that it is uh, a really fun and exciting combination of both the monster movie and a disaster picture. Yes. Mm-hmm. And I think that so that true. element that, yeah, absolutely. And I think that that element that traces through uh, brings up a very kind of interesting like 90s staple almost in terms of ethos here, which is the flattening of class distinction, mm-hmm. you know, or, or like the quasi flattening of class distinction. And in this case, of course, it's because they're all in a live or die scenario, but it is uh, fun to lose sense of those things in this environment for a little while and have everybody kind of placed on equal footing yes. in terms of the level of danger. And I, I think that is what for me provides so much of kind of the reward of the movie is watching that happen. Like, you know, it's not, and I like plenty of movies that, you know, do a thing where it's like, Oh, you know, the, the, the system is at odds with like the survival of the people. And, you know, there are, mm-hmm. you know, this, this locus of power that doesn't really care about, you know, whether or not people uh, live or die. 
but in this there's there is a reward there's a, a pleasantness to watching everybody just kind of summarily being off indiscriminately regardless of whatever their pocketbook looks like yeah absolutely it's you know and i think that's another thing that makes the gala such a great such a great narrative hook right because it 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 ensures there are no there are no ordinary visitors Mm-hmm. Uh, you, you know, all the ordinary visitors have been removed. Everybody who's everybody who's in danger here. Okay, the museum staff is you know is largely largely innocent. You know, except maybe of sort of venality. Um, mm-hmm. You know, but but um, you know everybody there is a sort of is is either a kind of venal museum employee or a wealthy donor or the you know the mayor who's an asshole. Um, a, a strange you know wow a really. An asshole Chicago mayor. That's um, one of the one of the movie's more curious flights of fancy. You, yeah, interesting, interesting. Yeah, really, really strange narrative <laughs> choice. Um, and and uh, you know, yeah. So I think that's a that another. Speak, you know, you 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 were talking about sort of threads that don't quite pay off, but you don't really think about them anymore. The two kids who sneak into the museum at the beginning really feel yeah. like they're going to be in a sort of you know. Um, really feel like them getting locked in it really feels like them getting locked in there will be part of the drama mm-hmm. um and then it seems that basically they discover that security's bar- guard's body and are never heard from again right <laughs> that's, that's, right. that's it um, yeah so that's okay but you know and so that uh, clearly a choice is made not to have two little kids running around possibly menaced by this monster you know that's a that's a path the movie doesn't take yeah, and I'm thankful for it, frankly. Like, yeah. you know, it, it works sometimes. I think of like, you know, the the Newt character in Aliens, a, yeah. a, a film that this uh, movie is clearly indebted to. Um, Absolutely. But in this one, you know, as soon as the the little kids get locked in the museum, I'm like, ah, here we go. Like, it's going to be, yeah. you know, it, it it feels stakeless. Which, yes. um, I, I guess in the novel, there's a scene like this where these kids get locked in the museum and become the first victims of the monster uh, actually nice. okay and i was like a reason to keep it in uh if this movie were going to introduce early on that kids are fair game i i yes. i'm kind of a sicko in this regard though where Agreed. it's like where it's like it, it, when a movie establishes early that like uh it has no particular reverence uh for like the safety of children and they are also on the table for whatever the the cruelty in the monster is i'm like yeah we're, we're dealing with a professional here yeah well that's i mean it's very funny and and uh, you and i think we're talking about this uh, about this privately but it is very funny in, in a lot of ways that the last movie i was on here for was was the jurassic park sequel which very much has that virtue as well right which yes. which, which illustrates <laughs> very early and in extremely hilarious ways that it is it is fully willing to be unpleasant to children um, yes one of the funniest one of the funniest match cuts you know, in, in history built around, <laughs> uh, you know, around the suffering of a child. Right. Um, and so, and, and so, yes, there, there certainly is a case to be made for that, but movie, th- this movie doesn't go that way and you can, you know, and fair enough. I don't think you understand how this works. You're a junior detective. You don't order the mayor to do anything. All I know is I've been ordered to get everybody out of this building. Now someone or something is in here. You saw what it can do. Sorry, but I'm not budging. Is anybody there? What? No, Augusta. Put the mayor on. Put him on. This is Mayor Owen. 
Merrill, and this is Lieutenant D'Augusta. Lieutenant D'Augusta? D'Augusta, sir. Vincent. Badge number 14173. We spoke once before. Do you remember? I want you to consider very carefully. With all due respect, sir, you can fire me on Monday, but right now I want you to shut your fucking mouth and listen. I'm putting Sergeant Hollingsworth in charge, and you're going to do exactly what he tells you to do. Or well, what, Lieutenant? Or none of you are going to live to see Election Day. Hollingsworth! Hollingsworth, you there! Excuse me, Your Honor. I'm here, Lieutenant. Take the fire stairs back down to the sub-basement and head west into the service area. Go through the passageway to the old coal line. You'll come up across the street from the museum, and you go slow, you go quiet. Together. You understand? I got it. I'm not walking through some filthy crawl space. Well, Shut up, Tom! Let's go. Let's move. Speaking more about the similarities between this film and uh, your previous guest appearance for yeah. The Lost World Jurassic Park. Uh, we have yet to really delve into who is is clearly the MVP of this movie, uh, and that is Stan Winston and his creature effects. Of course, uh, Stan Winston's a name that many of our listeners will be familiar with. For those who are not, um, the god makeup and special effects artist responsible for a lot of your favorite films, The Thing, uh, Jurassic Park, and its sequel, the Predator films, Aliens, you know, he has had a hand in working on all of these and doing creature effects for them, making some of the most memorable movie monsters of, uh, you know, all of, of Hollywood's history. And I got to say, you know, the Cathoga is up there as well. It's an excellent, excellent creature yeah. design. And much of the effects work uh, is pretty astounding like i i'm you know i'm always impressed by the animatronic work and and by like the practical effects in in a movie with you know a, a phil Tippett or a stan winston or both in yeah. it but uh it, they really like knock it out of the park it is a scary scary monster it is it's it's a it's a it's a terrific creature design and and the movie the movie uses it very well it, you know it, it has that same since since Jaws, people have been talking about you know the 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 monster movies monster movie making a virtue of necessity, right? That's a very a, a very sort of old theme in talking about uh, about monster movies is is you know um, what what do you get from the fact what do you get from limitations? How do you benefit from limitations on on what your effects can do? Mm-hmm. Uh, and I think this movie is another good example of that, where it it has the the Jurassic Park mix of um, of, of, of computer generated VFX for the monster in motion that have aged only okay. Mm-hmm. Right. But that really are only used to like stitch together encounters with the physical model, you know? Um, so you, you don't, not a lot of pressure is put on the CGI elements because fundamentally i mean first of all very intelligently there's lots of lots of of the monster moving around in like low light or or partial lighting obviously that that'll stand by right um but it's also you know it's mostly about getting this thing from face to from place to place so you can do close-ups with with the model and and you can you can see something very tactile and and very um you know the thing about thing about practical effects right they cannot they, they cannot age out that that monster will always have been there Mm-hmm. Um, and I think it's a very smart use of what, what they could do at the time. 
Yeah, I completely agree with you. You know, I, I had seen some remarks that uh, a lot of the, the CGI work in this, of course, you know, d- does not hold up. And and I mean, by today's standards, it doesn't. You know, like right. it's it's very noticeable. It's it's very concretely uh, the the sort of low point of of the effects work in the film. But it doesn't bother because it it really is like you said, just there for some of the wide shots, for some of the movement, um, the ones that that don't look great. There's like a, an extended portion where we see a beheading you know, yeah. and it's, it, it has a, a little bit of kind of a video gamey quality to it. The same yes. with, with the creature, like scaling a wall where it, it just sort of kind of bounces from being vertical to horizontal on a wall without a lot of, you know, like movement or, or detail to it. But, yeah. um, the, the actual animatronic work, the, the, the practical effects work and, and the real like creature design that they've built, um, when it is in close up, when they when they get those you know shots of it kind of moving around within like especially like the the wet environments and stuff when they're underground in the water and you kind of just see the tail flipping out, uh, it's it's all like really impressive. It all just you said will we'll stand the test of time. Yeah, um, And uh, yeah, I just I I love it. I I miss when we had like you know tacticians and 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 professionals like this producing this kind of thing notably this movie too is very smart uh about how it utilizes the creature it knows like many good monster movies do like you know really scott did on the first alien film that you can't really put it back in the box yeah mm-hmm. and for a large portion of of the film uh the creature's you know kind of full fullness of it uh is kept abstracted from us we see we see its eyes we see its its claws we see these you know tusks that have a very utilitarian purpose right it can kind of like scoop a head and rip it from Mm -hmm. the body and Mm -hmm. um yeah it's just they do a good job for for such a long portion of the movie almost to the point where you feel like you were never going to actually see it um that of of withholding it from you and allowing your imagination to kind of parse together the the holes in between because it's subjecting people to such a grisly end the sort of setup while you're not seeing it has a lot of uh, has a lot of power i think mm-hmm. you know i mean there i think you you already you already i think gave gave the spoiler warning and and we have, we've already mentioned that it you know uh, that that, that the, the creature turns out to have been this um this anthropologist uh who's transformed but I don't think that really us- that that really occurs to a viewer on the first watch. No. Um, and I think, and it's funny that it doesn't because because in retrospect, of course, what else could it mean that that everybody on this boat has been killed on on this ship, right? Given that we know his his crates didn't make it on the ship, you know, given that we know <laughs> right. nothing made it onto this ship except the anthropologist himself. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, it, it, it ought to be obvious that it's him, but that's just such a left field explanation that your mind doesn't really bring it forward. And as a result, when you see this ship and it's like, you're, you're kind of like, holy shit, what has done this? You know, it's a, it's, you don't need to see it for a good while because it is doing some bizarre stuff. It's really kind of <laughs> remarkable. Yeah. And they do, they leave just enough, you know, kind of gaps in the narrative early on for you to miss that and, and, you know, uh, not make the assumption that it is, uh, our, our 
anthropologist character because you you wonder oh is this the ship that he got on or is this a different ship that did make it to port because the boxes were left there yeah. and, and the crates made it onto a different ship and then became something you you don't really know at first no. and but but you're right that like you know it's a suspicion you should have had and yet as like a, a late movie reveal uh, it's really rewarding because it, they've done such a good job of kind of carrying you along and and keeping that thread of mystery to it that uh, it it pays off very markedly yeah. when you're like, oh, it's it's the guy, it's him, he's it's very, the monster. And also, you know, I you you already mentioned, I think, you know, fun computer stuff, and I I, I get such a kick out of. Um, really elaborate bespoke interfaces that no one in their right mind would ever have designed. And, and I love the way that this reveal is handled is, yes. is, that, is, is as though, as though this program that sequences DNA pops up a little picture for you when it's decided what it is. And, right. and, and I guess this guy's picture was, a, was in the, was in the system. They yeah. <laughs> like, like actually shows his face. They, they have the database that reveals the different, uh, DNA strands in it, right? So it's like, yes. oh, there's there's a gecko, there's the spider, there's human DNA, and then they run it through again because apparently every member of the staff at the museum or of like you know the the populace of the United States, who knows, is somehow like their their DNA is yeah, <laughs> somehow right. they, on record like they have specifically, all specifically not just right. human but like that guy we have that they, guy DNA in there yeah they have the genetic information of a, a, a certain number of people such that like this computer can scan and be like oh we found it it's it's a guy named John Whitney ever heard of him <laughs> uh, and they're like yeah we have heard of him he works here that's weird it's actually really weird this is super weird <laughs> I know that guy no totally it's, it's a coworker. <laughs> Uh, but no, you're, I mean, you're right. Like this, this very kind of, uh, suspension of belief here, sort of disbelief, I guess. Yeah. Um, but it, it, it works and it's a fun reveal. Yep. And I, I don't know how they would have possibly revealed this in the novel to make it more believable, but I, yeah. I like the idea that it's just some supercomputer with all the genetic information of everybody right. that can tell you this. And then it leads to, you know, like a, a fun kind of climactic finish to this as well. As you mentioned, uh, Sizemore's character is sort of sidelined. He's like stuck yes. behind a locked door. He's not the hero of this movie after all. Um, it's Penelope Ann Miller's character and she sets up a very elaborate situation to set the monster alight and by the way, hide in a tank that is designed to strip the flesh yes. off of a rhinoceros yes. uh, that she jumps into and waits out a, a, a lab fire for who knows how long, but comes out completely unscathed again a uh, 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 you know thing in the movie that I'm not going to uh, criticize too much but you know <laughs> yeah it's you know uh, and and that's enough you know the the um, the sort of uh, flesh-eating insects that that the that the that the, the uh, museum uses to clean to clean to finish cleaning bones that have been partially stripped in that tank is another kind of angle never paid off. And I and I I think I did read somewhere that somebody was supposed to sort of die at the hands of those flesh-eating you know <laughs> eating bugs and be partially devoured, and they cut that you know very very sort of. Uh, the the 1999 mummy type you know type deal that didn't oh i love that 
didn't make the cut. Um, so, yeah, sad. I kind of I would I would have liked to see that. Uh, but it's I I love I love the way this climax is is set up because the because from a character perspective the movie really has its cake and eats it too right because Sizemore mm-hmm. it's it's Sizemore's heroic moment right it's 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 him saying okay you know we're gonna lock you into this um, we're gonna lock you into this like hermetically sealed lab area and you're gonna be safe and I'm gonna be the big hero sort of locked out of this uh, out of this locked into the sort of wing of the museum where I believe this creature is sort of prowling at will um, and I'm gonna hold it off right and it, and it's almost certainly a sort of suicide mission right and, yeah. and 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 he has to talk Penelope Ann Miller into it she doesn't you know she doesn't want to do it um, she doesn't want to leave him on his own but he but he's the big hero right and very quickly basically as soon as the as you know as the bolt slides shut, <laughs> Uh, you know, it becomes it becomes clear they have exactly reversed the situation that they yes. have, <laughs> they have not locked him out with the monster. They have locked her in with it. Mm-hmm. Um, and so it's a heroic moment for him that nonetheless sets the table for her to be in total control uh, down the stretch. And I like that a lot. I think it's really it's a it's a really neat piece of writing. I agree. It's a fun subversion. And then also like. I don't know how this was intended to play out like, you know, straight, but there seems to be this implication that uh, despite their scientific or, or professional rivalry that Penelope Ann Miller's character, Margot Green and John Whitney had Mm -hmm. some sort of like romantic entanglement. There does Uh, seem to be some suggestion of that. Yeah. And and it's, you know, maybe I'm I'm reading too much into it, but it's like, you know, the, the, the creature stops momentarily from killing Penelope and Miller's character because there's almost this sort of like recognition. And of course, you know, maybe like at a base level, it's just like, Oh, this recognition of humanity behind the monster and Mm -hmm. the monster briefly recognizing its own humanity and its origin for a minute. But then it promptly like sticks out this enormous CGI forked tongue and just like goes to town on Penelope and Miller. (laughs) Yeah. The classic, yeah. The classic sort of gross out, you know, moment yeah no i totally thought what they were said like i i even on multiple viewings every time we get to that moment i think what they're setting up is is that she's gonna like call him by his name and momentarily you know give him pause and save herself that way or something and Mm -hmm. and sort of reach and and every time i forget that it's not gonna play out like that that it isn't (laughs) that's just not what's gonna happen this is the one place this is the one place I was a little perturbed by the lack of practical effects. Mm-hmm. Uh, the tongue is entirely CGI'd and yeah. I was like Weird choice. You've been you've been spending a lot of this movie like showing me disgusting close ups of like salivating mouths yep. and teeth and, you know, orifices and eyeballs and things. Just give me a tongue. Give me a gross yeah. out tongue moment here. They do it in the lost world, you know. Yep. Um there, there was an opportunity here, I think, missed. But again, mild grievances in the grand scheme of things. The final scene is a lot of fun. This uh, f- monster completely alight and on fire, <laughs> like CGI, oh, yeah. running about the laboratory. Uh, it's, it's a good showstopper, like blow everything up kind of ending that these yes. sorts of movies necessitate. Yeah, absolutely. And it's, you know it's a nice sort of final, you know, there's no question about the creature's death, you know, there's no, no, no plan with it. It is, it is, it's consumed. Uh, you know, we, we talked about a little bit that, you know, there are all these sort of like, uh, competing narratives happening and, and, you know, different theaters of, of 
terror all happening at once, whether it's in the museum proper, it's the tunnels underneath, or it's in the laboratory. Um, and <laughs> I do like that the characters who are being led out of the you know tunnels out to Lake Michigan immediately and promptly get out and and are you know topside in safety and they go running straight back into the chaos of yep. the field museum yes. um, but but it has a nice payoff moment at the end too you know the jaws mayor in this has learned his lesson you know he's gone through enough trials and travails by the end of it to tell the police captain to lay off lay off lieutenant augusta he's a he's mm-hmm. a good guy you know like uh, we don't don't fire him he saved a bunch of us I, I i i got a little indignant at the end there i was like doesn't he deserve maybe a little bit more than don't fire him like <laughs> hey be go easy on him like i don't know man he saved your ass like maybe maybe a maybe a commendation or something i don't know you know yeah it, you know and this is you know part of the movie where it's like it it does a good job of leveling the playing field of a lot of the characters and putting a bunch of them in danger summarily. And we see a couple of like, you know, the gala attendees get offed alongside yeah. the cops and other people. Um, but the mayor makes it. And so does his yep. wife and his wife's cleavage, which he points out, you know, everyone in Chicago has seen. Yeah. Um, they all survive. And we also don't see the wealthy benefactors die either we see no. everyone around them but the blaisdales the the very very rich ones that are you know that um everyone is sort of bending over backwards for that are gonna they're deciding to grant too yeah the, yeah no. yeah i mean we just we don't see those and i feel like you know if the movie had maybe a little bit more of a mean streak it would have gone that way um but uh yeah we just never we never see it those blaisdales by the way i don't know if you clocked this peter but uh mrs blaisdale is played by Constance Towers, uh, an actress who uh, is in Sam Fuller's Shock Corridor and the lead in The Naked Kiss. Have you seen oh, either of these shit. films? I have seen The Naked Kiss. That was she, her? She is Kelly, the, the, the main prostitute on the run in that movie. Um, That's wild. I did not put that together at all. And there she is in this film. I, so I, she is. She's not in it for very long, and she's no. not ever shown in, I think, you know, enough kind of relief to ever clock it. Another performer who we haven't mentioned yet who is in the movie, and it is her final film appearance, is Audra Lindley, who I'm not terribly familiar with, but she plays the medical examiner in this movie. Oh, okay. And Oh, yeah. Mm-hmm. And yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I don't know much about her, but from this single performance and her five minutes alone, uh, I am willing to gamble on her as a presence in any other films that she might yes. pop up in. She's so much fun in this movie. She is like, I mean, both an audience surrogate, but also like someone who's like been around the bend once or twice and like, you know, thinks she's seen it all. I don't know. It it has a very it it's a you know it's a stock character from these kinds of films, yes. um, but man, does she like run away with it for for those like five minutes? She she comes in and just knocks everything over, kicks everything down, and just makes that scene her own. Yeah, I'm glad you bring her up because she really does pop in that scene, and um and it's it's funny, you know. I, I don't know her from much either, but you ever, you know, you ever have this experience when you're watching and, and somebody comes into a scene and, you, and you're sort of squinting at some, at, at, at an actor like that's, that's somebody. 
I, I, that's not a person that I know, but I guarantee you that this is an actor with a body of work. Cause like <laughs> something's coming through here. Like yes. just, and, and, and I had that, I had that moment with her a hundred percent where I had to look her up to see if I knew her from anything, which I don't think I really do. Um, I think best known for three's company, which I didn't really watch. Mm-hmm. Um, so, so I didn't, don't know that I did know her from much, but you're right. Uh, immediately you get the set. You think, you think that you must because, because she really comes through very strongly. Yeah. I, it's funny, you know, they also put her in, uh, like a hairnet and a, a surgical mask for almost the entirety of the performance as well. Yeah. So like, even if you were to somehow like clock, like maybe this is who this actress is, um, there's no way of really knowing because she's like obscured from us for a, a substantial portion of the movie. Yeah. It's, it's, yeah, it's kind of, it's kind of interesting. Yeah. But I mean, there's a lot of, I mean, it's, it's clearly, you know, it's, it's full of veteran kind of like character actors like that who really populate the spaces around it. We've mentioned a couple of them already. Um, our, our buddy, uh, Richie April shows up for a minute. Hell yeah. David Proval. Uh, yeah. Yeah. David Proval's in it. Um, and yeah, it just, it, it populates the film with a good cast of guys that mm-hmm. all are, are there to just like provide. I just feel like we don't get this kind of like ensemble work anymore. You know, like there are the yeah. leads and then there are the poorly animated AI scans of the, the background actors. Um, we don't, oh we don't God. have a good cast of guys anymore. No. And, and it, it is, yeah, we have, we have, there's very much now a kind of two, two tier, you know, movie economy where, you know, you have the, um, the, 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 the big spectacle movies that are just crying out for guys. Um, and then you have, because there are so few, you know, outlets for guys, then you have movies that contain all the guys, all like the just guys. <laughs> every single one. Yeah. I was, you know, you know I, I say we don't get them anymore, but then I recall immediately, like we all just went and saw killers of the flower moon last yeah. week. And that movie has literally every guy in it that's every single yeah. one of them no yeah i feel like martin scorsese and christopher nolan this year sort of challenged each other to you know to to, to could could they both release movies in 2023 that between the two of them would cast every working actor uh in in, in hollywood and they didn't but 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 damn you know uh damn did they get close they got close um, they certainly tried yeah yeah and i mean i think it you know it, it's part of the heart of what makes this movie uh, such a joy to watch and why I, I embrace it so much. I mean, beyond just like, again, the the technical prowess on display here from all the, the you know, different disparate components of it. It's just something that feels like a distinct time and place. Um, it's something that feels indicative of a, a different kind of film economy and like film world that could spawn this kind of thing. And while there's certainly people doing it, you know, it's not at necessarily this scale with the sort of budget with this uh, amount of kind of, uh, of skill behind it from, from all parties. And uh, I don't know, I I miss it. It it really feels like it's right after the heyday of, you know, some of the bigger budget action fare of, you know, uh, uh, aliens or, a Jurassic Park and what have you, but it's taking a lot of the lessons learned from those movies and it's taking a lot of the appeal of those and doing it in a slightly more compartmentalized uh, and, and kind of smaller scale. Yeah, I, I totally agree. And I think it's really notable that this is, you know, 
a, a journeyman director. You know, Peter Peter Hyams, as, as who as we discussed, has a has some good movies in his body of work. But mm-hmm. but you know, a lot of the time, you know, when you there's a tendency to do this sort of I do it constantly to do this sort of they don't make them like this anymore. Uh, you know, thing with with um, with big studio movies from from the '90s and and. A lot of the time, what you, you you sort of look at it and you go, oh, well, Alan Pacula directed that, or like you know that that's a, you know what I mean, like yes. it's like a, you know, these these, it's like yeah, gee, of course it was good. We have we have ace craftsmen at the helm, mm-hmm. but this is a signal. This movie illustrates, I think, that that kind of craft and dedication is coming from you know the sort the the, the journeyman tier as well, you know, yeah. and. No, because and meaning no disrespect by that to Peter Hyams, who, as we said, does very good work here and does excellent DP work. His, uh, you know, the cinematography, I think, outstanding. Um, but it is, it's, it's not the same as sort of going back and being like, well, yeah, you know, Martin Scorsese movies also looked nice in the '90s. You know, it's, right. it's, it's a different <laughs> kind of thing. Yeah, I mean, and and it's you know, it's I think to me expressive of what you're talking about, which is like. You know, there wasn't this sort of two tier system where you get like two things that are so far apart from one another, where everyone was kind of operating on a sort of similar scale. And you're right, like, you know, uh, Pakila is like doing presumed innocent and the Pelican brief at this point, you know, he's definitely doing like late period kind of middle brow stuff. Um, Mm -hmm. But the look of those things, the look of like the journeyman directors products of this era, like they they all have a certain. Uh, like comparable level of skill and intent to them. Like there isn't a lot here that looks like just sludge. It doesn't look like junk. And so much of, I think what we get in the absence of, you know, a a landscape populated with a lot of these kinds of movies is just that it's, it's, it's passable, completely forgettable, like sludge that, that no one's going to consider again. That isn't meant to be rewatched. It's meant to be just consumed once and then sort of like regurgitated and, and onto the next thing. Um, this one just it, it has staying power, and and these yeah. kinds of movies have a certain level of tactility and like presence and staying power that you lose over time. That makes it so worthwhile and so much fun to revisit. Absolutely. Before you go, I did want to talk to you about one more thing. It's not within our decade, but I, I have noticed, and we've talked about it online, uh, that you have uh, recently become an acolyte of one of my longtime and enduring uh, horror favorites, The Mothman Prophecies. Yes. I am, I am a new convert to The Mothman Prophecies, and I, I, have, a, I have the convert seal. Absolutely. <laughs> well, I was very pleased to see this because, uh, I mean, th- this movie has been in my life for a long time. Mothman, uh, friend of the show, you know, uh, yeah. <laughs> uh, has has predicted many uh, a human disaster uh, for sure. us here at Hit Factory and Hit Factory Nation. Uh, but I mean, it, it really is one of those movies where I, I had seen it. I, and I'm not kidding when I say this. I'd, I'd seen it probably 20 times, you know, uh, just on premium cable around the time that it come out, renting it from 
you know, the local blockbuster. And I had not visited it in almost 20 years and, and confirmed, you know, after my sort of cinephilic awakening, whether or not it was any good. Um, mm-hmm. And then I saw you uh, singing its praises and revisited it myself this past week. And uh, I was very pleased to find that it mostly holds up for me. I, I really did. Uh, I, I found it enjoyable and, and all the stuff in it that is uh, just spine tingling and creepy, like remains as such. There are moments yeah. in this that still get to me and get under my skin. Especially that first half, the first sort of the first two acts are are so soaked in dread. It's kind of remarkable. Yeah. I, it has lived in my head now for a majority of my life, uh, the way that the entity on the phone says the word chapstick. (laughs) This, I was so glad this, this was something that, that I think made it a virtue. I, I owe my, I owe my new love of this, um, this movie to, uh, to Katie Reif, formerly of the AV club, mm-hmm. um, who's been, uh, organizing, uh, a really, a really, she's been co-programming a really great series of, um, of horror screenings at the music box here. Um, and this was one that I couldn't make it to, mm. uh, but I, but I, I went to see another one and I saw a trailer for it. And I remembered the Mothman prophecies as a relatively derided uh, release that I, I, I had a, at that age, I had a lot of holes. I was going to movies mostly with my uncle who doesn't like horror. So there were, the, there were sort of some <laughs> blind spots and this was one of them. And it was not one I had ever really been moved to seek out. Um, and, um, and, and so I saw, I saw a trailer for it and I, and I, I said, first of all, this actually looks, this looks really good. They were doing a trailer for that screening. And I thought this, this looks excellent. Um, and I also figured that if they were programming it, it must mean at least the, the, the two organizers of this series thought there was something there. And I thought, well, maybe I should check it out. Um, and I was really glad when I got to that phone call scene, which is incredibly creepy. I was really glad to have forgotten about it. Mm-hmm. Because that chapstick line was in the trailer, and was in the was in the thirty second spot for the yeah. movie, which played endlessly on TV at the time. And I remembered only when the scene got to that point did I remember how much people had mocked that line from the trailer <laughs> because yeah. it, it, it 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 was it was not a line that I would have put in the the, the trailer. You know, like absent its context, it. it it doesn't, it doesn't play, No. but I was glad to have forgotten that that line was so widely derided because that scene is so creepy. I mean, it's certainly the, the, you know, creepiest guy on phone scene this side of lost highway for sure. You know, I was got, I was blown away by it and was very glad to just to no longer have the baggage of that, that brief cultural moment when that trailer was getting clowned on. No, absolutely. It's, uh, I, I mean, it's, it's a really, it's a terrific movie. Um, mm-hmm. I, I really enjoyed it. I, I have, you know, my, my quibbles with it here and there. Uh, yeah. but uh, overall I, I was really astounded to just like enjoy it almost as much as I did when I had, had seen it, you know, as, as a kid and, uh, gear is really good in it. Lenny's really good at Will Patton is excellent in it as yes, well. Will like Patton just like, yeah. uh, just incredibly creepy, uh, like great performance. And, uh, yeah, it just, it, it was pleasant to see you coming to it and, and other people enjoying it recently. And, uh, I give it my wholehearted endorsement. Go watch it alongside the relic, uh, for your holiday season. 
Yes, absolutely. Hit, hit factory extended canon, as it were. This is this is you know yeah the the long hit factory as as we as we say. That's right. It is the long hit factory indeed, and you know it is one of those films that though it is a two thousand two release, I think still very clearly exists as a pre nine eleven entity, uh, given its subject matter. And uh, you know if you're if you're to believe some of the historians, the nineties really didn't end until that fateful day in two thousand one. And uh, so, yeah, I, I guess we can consider it uh, amongst our, our extended canon, even though we'll, we'll never actually cover it on the show. You'll just you'll get our endorsement here at the end of another program and uh, hope that you all enjoy it if you haven't seen it. Yes, absolutely. Well, Peter, with that, I think we will uh, wrap up with our proceedings today. I want to thank you so very much for joining me again on the show. It's always a pleasure talking with you, hanging out with you and, and chatting about movies. Thanks so much for having me. I always have a blast. Uh, you know, anytime. Great to be here again. Well, we're we're so thrilled to have you. We will absolutely have you again. Uh, in the meantime, where can people, Peter, find you uh, and or your work around the internet? Uh, I'm mostly, and, and to the detriment of my other professional obligations on Twitter, um, where you can find me <laughs> uh, at, at, at Peter Raleigh, but misspelled. So it's P-E-T-R-E. R-A-L-E-I-G-H, a a fun affectation that my friend convinced me to add to my handle when I was joining Twitter that now I'm too stubborn to get rid of. (laughs) Uh, Well, I will make sure to link to it to avoid any confusion uh, on behalf of our listeners to make sure that people follow along. You're an excellent follow. Uh, You you always have uh, just... uh, unbelievably intelligent things to say about literally any topic that anyone is talking about the discourse of the day. Um, and it's just such a pleasure to know you from there and, and from across our screens here as well. Much too kind right back at you from our end of things. Of course you can follow along with us at hit factory pod that's on Twitter and Instagram also on blue sky now, though no one's using it until the imminent collapse of Twitter. Oh yeah, you can find me there as well if you if you must. Is it spelled a P E T R? Same way. Well? Yeah. I love it. Yeah, you got to keep it at this brand, point. Yeah, you got to keep the brand. Um, we also have a Patreon, patreon.com slash hitfactorypod, where you can uh, subscribe to us for just five dollars per month uh, and get the entire Hit Factory experience, biweekly bonus content, episodes, fun stuff. There, uh, we're probably going to be picking that stuff up a little bit more. You're not just going to be getting uh, biweekly episodes of the show. I'm thinking about doing some TV series pretty soon here. I've been recently Evangelion pilled um, and everyone is convinced that it's going to turn into a multi-episode deep lore mini series for the show and they may not be wrong about that. So uh, subscribe, stay tuned. There's going to be more coming down the pipeline uh, very soon here and exciting stuff happening. Uh, We'll give a shout out to our overlords. Their names are Linda and Jared Murray. And we will see you all the next time. Take care, everyone.